Great. So, welcome everyone to the Science Media Centre's 20th anniversary podcast series. Um, these are kind of fireside chats with friends who played a major part in some of the biggest stories that the Science Media Centre has dealt with over our 20 years. So, we are gathered here today uh, to remember the events around the removal of Professor David Nutt from his role as government scientific advisor on recreational drugs, and most especially the way these events played out in the news media. Um, in terms of timing, we're talking about the kind of period up to uh, the sucking kind of early noughties, uh, early 2000s, and then the actual sucking was, I think, in October 2009, and it was um, Alan Johnson who was then the Home Secretary in the Labour government. So I'm joined by Professor David Nutt himself, who was then Chair of the Advisory Committee on the Misuse of Drugs, which will be called ACMD from now on, um, and also at Bristol University, and is now Head of the Centre for Neuro psychopharmacology at Imperial College London. Um, Dr. Evan Harris, who is formerly a Lib Dem MP and was a major champion of science in Parliament at the time as a member of the Common Science and Technology Committee, who's now works around the whole area of uh, media standards and phone hacking, etc. Um, and finally, Mark Henderson, who was then the science editor at The Times and is now Director of Corporate Affairs at the Wellcome Trust. Um, so just to set the scene a little bit from my perspective, and then I'm, I'm going to come to you first, David. So um, drugs was actually a big issue in the media at the time. I'd say more than it is now, the recreational drugs. Um, and I, what I remember was the journalists being all over ACMD. It was a very important committee. They waited for the reports. They, they all turned up. Um, for press briefings. And at the time, I remember really big set piece reports on ecstasy. And then they were waiting for the big report on cannabis. And they were every year or so. They were really substantial pieces of evidence gathering. A lot of the people on the committee, there was Mike Rawlins, who was then chair, um, and you were on it. A lot of them were hard scientists. There were others. There were representatives of police, etc. But they were very sci- it was a very sciencey committee. And so we when we got going in 2002, we lobbied Michael Rawlins, who's Professor of Pharmacology at Newcastle and Chair of many things, and we, we lobbied him to um, host those press briefings at the Science Media Centre on the basis that they're very sciencey and that would be a good place all the science journalists come to us, um, but also to demonstrate that kind of independence of this committee from government. Um, and, and I do always remember this being very politicised. So we got them, which was amazing, really, on retrospect. We, we ran those briefings. We ran several of them. Um, but the timing of the of the reports was always decided by government and government communications people. And what I remember was it was always announced on the same day. So the report that had taken two years of evidence gathering what was announced at a Science Media Centre press briefing on the day that the Home Secretary, Dismissed Jackie it. Smith, well, <laughs> uh, Jackie Smith and then um, Alan Johnson, etc., gave their response. And there was literally a couple of hours. And mm. I don't know if Mark remembers this, but we used to say, we really want the science and health people because this is essentially a science and health evidence report. Um, and it was a big turf war between the home affairs journalists who said, no, this is drugs policy, it's mine, or indeed the political journalists because they knew that the politicians were making statements. So that was my experience. It was a very kind of, there was, there was I don't know, I had a sense of impending doom about the whole thing. I think it was um, it was a crisis ready to happen. So I think David, Straight to you. Can you just tell us, you know, when you joined ACMD, when you then became chair and, 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 and whether you had this sense of impending doom that you were a bit of a controversial figure, but presumably they wouldn't have made you chair. Um, so, yeah, give, give us a brief run through those years. Yeah, so I was invited to be considered to be chair of the scientific committee of the ACMD in about 1999. I went along to a meeting to meet the others and I, I sat at the table and I was horrified by the lack of scientific rigour 
in the decision-making. And I said, I, w- I would actually take on this role, provided we were allowed to develop a transparent, evidence-based assessment of drug harms. And I guess that was under the Blair government and people were interested in science. And they said, sure. And so for the first five or so years, I, uh, I worked with my team at the Home Office to develop the, uh, the template for assessing drug harms and, and then to assess 20 different drugs under that template. And that paper was published in The Lancet in 2007. And it showed that there was a mismatch between the Misuse of Drugs Act and the, um, the harms of drugs. So that was the beginning of the challenge because the government didn't like that and, and kept trying to stop us doing any more research because it was coming up with the wrong answers. But eventually the, uh, the Science and Technology Committee insisted that we had to review ecstasy. It hadn't been reviewed since it was made a class A schedule one drug back in the nineties. And they asked us, you know, why we hadn't reviewed it. And we said the Home Office wouldn't allow it. So they said, well, you've got to do it. And the Home Office were forced to allow the ACM to do, do it. And we did it. And we came to the conclusion that it should be definitely not a class A drug, maybe a class B or a class C drug. And that's really when the, uh, the problem started. And I suppose I did compound the issue a little by trying to be helpful to try to explain to governments how exactly harmful ecstasy was. And when I did my famous comparison of ecstasy and horse riding, and I guess that was when it started to become very uh, uh, interesting to the media because it was very difficult to convince, convince the media that horse riding was dangerous at all, even though, you know, 50 to 100 people a year die riding horses. Uh, and Jackie Smith, the Home Secretary at the time, was was very, very angry that I dared to make that comparison. Although it's worth saying that you you didn't just make the comparison, you did a study. I remember you describing, yeah, you, you got a bunch a paper of PhDs, you published a, a paper, paper. it was in a scientific journal. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it was evidence, it wasn't just your opinion. Correct. Um, so just briefly talk us through the Jackie Smith thing, because I think that's when it really, when we really mm. knew there was a problem, when Jackie Smith came out in the media and demanded that you apologise to all the parents of children who died from ecstasy by a certain time that day, I think, by the end of the day, or you'd be sad. So you were chair by then? uh, Yes, I was chair by then. That's right. The whole committee. Um, Yes, and I was appointed chair because actually, you know, at the time, the uh, the trustees, I suppose, or the the Home Office um, grandees, still, I think, believe that there might be scope for using evidence rather than opinion to make drug laws. But that kind of change, I don't know whether it changed because of the change in Home Secretary or probably it changed because of the change in Prime Minister, Gordon Brown. Mm. But so, so yes, yeah, so it's, um, that dis- the discussion was pretty heated. Uh, I said it was difficult to apologise, but because <laughs> these were facts, but if I'd, obviously, if I'd offended anyone, then, then I would apologise. But of course, that particular day was a very interesting day. It was an interesting day because it was a day that Jackie Smith was going to be grilled in Parliament about her second home and the flipping of her second home from Birmingham to her, her sister's flat in London. And it was also bizarre because the conversation I had with her when she shouted at me and said, you couldn't possibly compare a legal activity like horse riding with an illegal activity like <laughs> ecstasy taking was so surreal. But it happened in this very same room in which the concept of comparing horse riding with ecstasy had emerged to me many months ago where I'd actually sat in that outpatient office and seen someone whose brain had been damaged by falling off their horse. 
So, yes, it was yeah. quite a memorable day. And, and I remember actually being disappointed. I remember phoning you that night and being kind of disappointed that you'd apologised because mm. you'd done what the government... But one of the things you said to me that really struck me and I think is forgotten by even some other scientists who think you're on this kind of campaign against government was that you wanted to keep that job. You really wanted to chair the ACMD. You mm. wanted to advise government and you wanted mm. to, as you've just presented it, I think, very well, to kind of... Um, for the the evidence based approach to this to prevail, so you didn't you you were prepared to apologise partly because you yes you because, really wanted to stay. Well, I just I thought we were doing a good job. I mean, the, the reports we produced, as you alluded to mm. in your introduction, these were really major reports. They're citable today as scientific Indeed. documents. If you want to yeah. know about the harness of ecstasy, read yeah. the ACMD reports because they're very yeah. Dis- they were like they a big meta analysis, weren't they? In, in a way, like all, all uh, right. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Mark, uh, you're the the journalist on the panel. Remind me what the media appetite was for this issue. Was it all around the row? Between government and advisors, or was there just a lot of interest in drugs policy and evidence? Well, I think I think you need to to think of the media not as one monolithic whole in in regard to this, because really there were two media's covering this story. There was there was the media of largely the science and health correspondents from places like the Times, the Guardian, the BBC, the FT, who were trying to look at this. I think in a constructive uh, kind of Where's the evidence weighing up what David was saying versus what the government was saying on one side? And then you had also the Daily Mail, the Sun, the, 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 the tabloids who were, who clearly saw that this was an emotive topic, that it was very easy to, uh, to, to, to kind of, um, uh, press certain buttons and, 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 and very easily sort of sensationalize and, and make it, how could this person possibly be saying these things? So, so actually it was, it was very interesting from a media point of view in that, in that the, the government was clearly pandering or playing to one part of the media. But I think interestingly, I hadn't expected to be held to account a little bit mm-hmm. by the other part of the media. And in fact, I mean, I was looking back over the, some of the, the stories that were written over the time. And, and I, I wrote a book about science and politics called The Geek Manifesto, in which this featured a lot mm-hmm. and reread the chapter on that last night. And, and what really struck me was there was actually really a large amount of holding the government to account. I, I don't think the government expected at all that there would, be, I think they expected that their attack on, on David would just be seen by the media as, oh, the government's doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. This, this, this silly scientist is being put in his place. But mm-hmm. I think they'd reckoned without what happened on the other mm-hmm. side. And it was noticeable as well, the extent to which others within government actually felt emboldened enough to speak out and defend David John Beddington, who was chief mm-hmm. scientist at the time, Lord Drayson, who was mm-hmm. the science minister. And I mean, as, as a journalist on, who was at the time who was who was writing some of these stories? I was getting leak after leak after leak from people quite high up in the government saying the government's really messed this one up, and that was quite interesting because it wasn't what was I think what 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 Alan Johnson and Jackie Smith before mm. actually expected. And what, what I think was particularly interesting also about this case and indeed many of them was that it it really demonstrated the category error with which government tends to approach scientific advice they and scientific evidence and and this has applied to multiple governments of pretty much every political complexion over recent years in which they like the evidence so long as it supports what they want to do anyway they've largely already decided or 
or they want to sort of hide behind a kind of scientific veneer to make a decision that they feel is the right decision to make for all sorts of reasons of which politics is is nearly always one of them. Now, that's fine, actually. Politicians have to take into account a whole range of factors when making decisions. Science is one of them, but it's certainly not the only one. And I, I think what happened in this case was very much they they wanted to sort of say, well, we want the evidence so long as it's mm. going to be convenient evidence. Mm. And actually, if it's not, then we'd rather leave the evidence. What, what I think Alan Johnson should have said is, that's fine, I accept this completely. Actually, there's other factors we have to take into account. Exactly. Therefore, we're making yeah. decision X, Y, Z rather than mm. decision A, B, C. Yeah. I think that would have been perfectly yeah. okay. So it's about the honesty. It, it is. So over to you, Evan. We are actually, section two is about the actual sacking. So again, I'm just, I'm just slightly wanting to know what were you doing in Parliament around drugs policy or again were you like me because we're very media driven mostly interested in this because it was a media row but was drugs policy something that you were kind of as a politician campaigning around well i'd spent um about five years as lib dem science spokesman and i'd spent that five years trying to get my party to uh respect an evidence-based approach right and 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 if rejecting the evidence on the basis of cost or policy or principle principle uh, then to be honest about that and not claim that the evidence supported that political decision and politicians are entitled to make political cost-based decisions but transparency is important and I generally succeeded and so while I wasn't the home affairs spokesman at the time that was Chris Hume we were as one on drugs policy generally and the importance of following the science on it though we knew that we were dealing with a politicians in bo- both the other parties who were not prepared to consider the evidence on drugs policy. So it was a mixed picture because the Blair government was not bad on embryology matters, which I was also working on. But on this, it was very clear that when they knew they were going to be up against the tabloids, and I include the Telegraph in that, and Mark's right that there was a division, but it was between the the publications, I think, more than the journalists, because you know science writers in the sun are not going to get to change the sun's position, for example. Then I knew that... Um, we couldn't rely on the likes of Jackie Smith and as we went on to see uh, later, Alan Johnson. Um, and you saw with the Jackie Smith business, you know, the whole thing was was what David was saying sent the wrong message, right, around, around the dangers of ecstasy when there was no evidence that any message was being sent or if it was, that the message was not as Colin Blakemore, the much miss, sadly, recently departed Colin Blakemore said, that the that the message was that if you're doing a class A, you may as well do b- worse class A drugs, worse in quotes, which are indeed more dangerous. So, and, and what was interesting for me um, was that this was the archetype of politicians being craven to what they considered to be uh, that part of the media who were who <clears throat> were biased. The, the other media were not in favour; they were just fair and balanced. Mm. Now. I've learned, I knew then, you can't rail against the media. It's like, you know, fish complaining about the water. You've just got to have the courage as a politician to, to stand up to that and make your case. And it was very dis, and, you know, my little party did and suffered for it, but the bigger parties had their ways of doing that and just refused. They took the easy way out. And it was fascinating, but depressing. And that Jackie Smith incident, not understanding statistical comparison, which was it's not complicated, 
was a sign, a sad sign of things to come, I thought. Yeah. Okay. So listen, um, it's not every day that a, uh, somebody actually gets removed from being a chief scientific advisor. There was lots of talk in the pandemic about would Valence resign? Would Jeremy Farrer resign? It, it, it doesn't often happen. Let's face it. And in fact, most of this happens outside of the media view. So mm. let's just focus for a few minutes on that actual day, I think. And I, you know, what, what, if you can each remember where you were when you heard the news, is it like um, when you heard Diana died or Kennedy or whatever? Do you remember it? And obviously, just to start with you, David, how did you get this news? How was it portrayed to you? We won't go into detail, but this was also another scientific paper. I do want to keep stressing this. This was not David going from studio to studio to send out messages. Often these things were happening because, in this case, a scientific paper that had been published and delivered in a talk um, had now hit the media a few months later. So, so what? So you woke up that morning, and what happened? Well, actually, it started the day before, and I it, obviously remember it was the the Today program. I, I don't know, I think it was probably Justin who was interviewing me, and he was talking about that paper of comparison comparative drug harms, and he said, "Look, you know, okay, so you know, obviously, alcohol is pretty harmful. I mean, we agree that, but you're not really telling me that LSD is less harmful than alcohol, are you?" And I said, "Of course, it is. It's obvious, it is. You know." At which point the world went mad mm. because, I, I mean, I, I was in the studios in Bristol. I went from Radio 4 to Radio 2 to the World Service to the BBC TV to the They went completely bonkers. And um, and then by lunchtime, the, 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 the chief scientist in the home office had said, well, would I come to London and have breakfast with him the next morning? So I said, okay. So I came up to London that night and I had breakfast the next morning with him and my and the secretariat from the, from the ACMD. And he said, how did it go? And I said, well, you know, the press just obviously exaggerated things completely. I mean, you know, the usual problem, you know, hysteria. Uh, and I said, fine. Okay. So we sort of agreed. We just carry on. And then as I left the, as I left the breakfast, I was going to a, to do a, to a scientific meeting at Imperial, strangely. And I said to my secretary, well, I'll see you, I'll see you tomorrow on, cause I'm going to do, um, uh, radio one on ketamine. And he said, uh, things are a bit hot at present. Perhaps let's let's not do Radio One tomorrow on ketamine. I said, okay, fine. I, you know, I'm busy. That's fine. And I went off to the meeting, and you know, the sun. You know, it was a half day symposium, and about two thirty in the afternoon, I got a text. Can you read your emails? I said, of course, I can read my emails because I'm reading this email from you. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, um, well, read this one. And it was a letter from Alan Johnson saying, would I resign? I wrote back and said, no, I'm not going to resign because reality is what I've having to resign over. I've just told you what the analysis shows. And if you don't like it, well, I'm, you know, that's unfortunately the reality. So then, you know, 15 minutes later, he came back. Well, that actually means you're sacked. And, and that was quite a challenge. And so I had a, <laughs> about 15 minutes before I was giving my talk. And I thought, what can I do in 15 minutes? So I thought, well, the first thing I can do is I can email you at the Science Media <laughs> Centre. And then I literally sent the same email to every single media contact I had. Uh, I gave my talk at four. At five, I went outside in the quad at Imperial and there was Sky, ITV and BBC News all lined up. And I did an hour and a half of interviews. And, it, and then I did news nights. And the government couldn't even, it couldn't, couldn't produce a response, I think, until Sunday morning, which was a very famous Sky interview with Alan Johnson lost his rag. So, in fact, you know, I, the media made it. Actually, the, you know, it, my media contacts actually gave me the, the strength and the impetus to, to really get out there and argue my case. And then we, we got you in for the briefing the next day, was it? Or was it on the same day? I know it was very quick because so, we had yeah. a massive number of journalists in the room, I remember. 
Yes, I think that might have been the next day. It might have been the next day. So, so I am, I, I want to hear where you two heard about it and what you did first, but I am interested in this lack of government response because I once got in trouble for saying that this is what um, Phil Jones should have done. He should have done a nut, as I said. He should have just got up and gone into Phil Jones being the scientist whose um, emails were hacked on mm, climate gate and used by the skeptics to say that it was mm. all a hoax. Um, and and, and I, what I meant was he should have just gone from studio to studio to studio to the Science Media Centre to explain. Um, and he couldn't do it because he was so shell-shocked by the whole thing. Mm. But what's interesting, and, and it's um, relevant to your point earlier about what the government, the government had seen the kind of benefits of playing to the Mail and the Sun and the anti-drugs papers, but didn't seem to have factored in the FAIR papers, nor did they seem to factor in that they... If, if they sacked a leading scientist, there would be some kind of response. So there was no rapid rebuttal to David going on. Mm. There were very little statements at all. So where were you, Mark? And what, I, what do you I don't think I was working on that day. I think, I think my colleague Sam Lister wrote the story mm. at the time. I do remember very clearly writing a lot of the follow up stories though in the weeks that followed and, and getting these, these briefings from people who probably shouldn't have been talking to me, clearly taking David's side rather than Alan Johnson's side and and which was which was a very obvious sign that government itself was quite divided over the right thing to do here. Just an interesting reflection though, David, but it's it's interesting you mentioning that with in relation to Phil Jones and Climate Gate. And and of course, in many ways, I'd say, David, your 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 response was exactly what a scientist in this position should do. And and is is how you fight back and actually in the short run. I think the coverage and the positioning of this issue was better as a result of what what you did. I don't think you 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 couldn't have done anything more. I think mm. to get the story in to play out in the way that it it did, and to get scientific evidence sort of properly on the table. Whereas I agree with you. I think Phil Jones didn't do that. But look at where we are now. Actually, mm-hmm. climate's moved on in a completely different, and mm-hmm. in my view, much more positive mm-hmm. way in mm-hmm. terms of political discourse than than drugs is. And and what a lot of this I think goes to show is that what really matters in what shapes political views and public views of this isn't actually these detailed moments. And sometimes these moments that matter a huge amount in the moment don't matter in the longer run. What matters in the longer run is the big narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think what's really changed about climate is people have been able to start telling a story that's about real experience and that is coming home to people about how it makes a difference to their lives. And science has told that story successfully in climate to the extent that even um, a fairly right-wing Tory government, as we have today, is saying at least that they remain committed to net zero. Uh, whether they actually remain committed to net zero is another matter, but but they're, they're saying the right things. Whereas, unfortunately, I don't think that the debate on drugs from scientific evidence has really moved on at all, even though in the short run, I think this incident was handled much better. Yeah. Um, Evan, I want to come to you to, to remember where you were, but, but also I think um, this is a good moment for you to tell us and remind us what your little group did with David, but with Tracy Brown from Sense About Science and myself and Case, I think. Um, well, in well terms Colin Blakemore of, was the other, and Colin Blakemore indeed. In, the, in, in the, terms in of the just the saying, fivesome. right, what are we going to do to prevent this happening again? Yes, I'll tell you where I was uh, when I heard. I have no idea. 
No. And I think most normal people don't have any idea. <laughs> uh, but what I would have done was brief my colleagues about how this was outrageous, both in terms of the policy, which we're not going to get into, but clearly, you know, there was a scientific basis behind this and I dug out the paper and shared it so that my colleague Chris Hune and the party leader and others and the press office knew what our position was going to be. And we were going to get hammering if we got any coverage at all for it, but we had to do it. And that was successful. And then what struck me was that this was far worse than the previous incident because this was a peer reviewed paper that was stating the case. That's the first point. And so he was being sacked. And I can't believe none of us here are calling it the nutsack incident. I don't know whether this is <laughs> SMC policy, but there you <laughs> it are. It's certainly not. Leave it in. Um, <laughs> he was being sacked for his academic work, you know, and, and what you can't do is say, join this advisory committee, scientific advisory committee, and abandon your career. You just can't do that. You're not going to get the scientists you need. So that was what was outrageous about this. And it was, I was so furious, but relatively focused on the fact that they didn't seem to get that and they didn't care. Yes, there was some pushback from opinion writers in some of the other parts of the media, but the government were very clear that they weren't going to take on top cops, you know, who are quoted, um, the, the, the families of people who died of drugs, where they never interview the people whose children's lives have been destroyed by criminalization. It's just never covered. And, and they didn't want to have to take on both the tabloid media and the conservative party on this, particularly when it's, when it's not a free vote issue. Uh, so I was determined quite, quite early on to see if we could get something out of this. And, and that's why. Lord Drayson, Paul Drayson's intervention was so important because that gave us a way in because under Jackie Smith, there had been no chink in the government's armour, but Paul Drayson actually, to give him credit as science minister, let it be known through, no doubt, through through uh, appropriate um, sourcing or leaks <laughs> that he was opposed to this. And, and there was encouragement for our group, that was you and Tracy Brown from Sense About Science, Colin Blakemore, who did a lot of the drafting, and myself, who could sort of did drafting, but could also focus it scientifically to say, let's make something out of the momentum that we have in that side of the media that sees how flawed this policy is and take advantage of the fact that there were these resignations from the ACMD in support of David, which showed that those scientists were independent and also showed in what esteem David was held. Because I don't think that's true of necessarily every every government appointee on a committee. And the government clearly underestimated his him and his willingness to respond in the way that's been described and, and, and his reputation. So we had an opportunity uh, to say never again, effectively, and to try and get come up with some principles that would mean that that would happen. I was also trying to get other people to resign. Um, but I think most of the resignations that took place were nothing to do with those efforts, but were how, how many members of the ACMD resigned when you did three or think, four, was it? I think the, the day after, I think it was probably five and then three or four more resigned subsequently when, when the Home Office tried to explain its policy and to them and failed, failed abysmally. So they, several of them walked out of the meetings when they were trying to be coerced into agreeing. I just, can I just say one Final thing about, uh, about the Lib Dems. I mean, Chris Hoon was in, like Evan here, was extraordinarily supportive. And in the debate on the Monday, and I remember watching the debate, watching Alan Johnson and uh, Chris Hoon debating my sacking with my children, uh, who was um, 
16, 17 at the time. And they were horrified by the, the complete lack of any reasoning or, or rationality in, in the government's position. And Hume was fantastic. I mean, he stood up, he challenged them. Uh, and he, you know, he really was a, a, you know, gave us a lot of, of encouragement that at least there were politicians that were really prepared to stand up for what we were doing. In terms of the general debate, I think Mark is absolutely right. I think the you couldn't have done things better. I mean, you're just by being out there and by being you and by being sciencey, because I don't think you turned it into a a major political battle with government, but you kept talking about the science. And we brought in Robin Murray and others because we also saw this is an opportunity to hear where science is in the headlines. It's always an opportunity. Let's have the debate out again with some of the good scientists who disagree with you. This isn't all about putting David's view of this, you know, but let let it be a scientific debate. Um, I do remember where I was. Um, I was on half term. My son was like nine or 10 or something. And we we had been anticipating this and we'd even had a little glass of wine and a few people from ACMD with you a couple of months before saying, what would we do if David Nutt was sacked? Um, and so I was kind of aware that I had to be ready for this. And uh, yeah, it was half term. I had failed to be off for the whole week even though I was meant to be with my son. And then finally on Friday, I am going to the cinema with my son. Um, phone rings and one of my colleagues says, David Nutt's been sacked. So I, hand, I was on the North Circular, which is a very busy road, handed him uh, the phone and said, right, phone these. Now, you now tell me you were doing the same. But but so, and I really remember that. Declan, my son sat in the, the back phoning Mark Henderson saying, I'm just phoning to tell you you've been sacked by the government <laughs> and that everyone was getting the wrong messages and, and and I was like right this is not a slick PR operation here um, but the other thing I really remember was uh, uh, Paul Drayson who's a science minister who had helped setting up the Science Media Centre and, and was a good friend of ours so we don't know many science ministers but we did know him well he was on holiday when it happened um, as one politician Japan, said rather bitchily yeah. he was yeah. racing cars in mm. Japan. Uh, Japan. Um, but when he came back, Mark and others were really, uh, you know, phoning him saying, you've got to say something. You have got to say something. You're the science minister and you haven't spoken. And uh, several days later, neither Paul nor John Beddington, the CSA, had commented. Um, and I think Mark was um, um, rightly kind of encouraging them to. And so, so Paul asked me to go and see him. And I will never, ever forget that scene because there were about... 10 young men, and they all were young men of not much, you know, maybe 10 years older than day in their early 20s. Um, and I tottered in in my high heels and because he just said, come in now. Um, and he said, they're saying, what should I say? What should I say? For you? What should I, what should I tell Mark Henderson about this? Um, and he was saying, they're telling me that if I say that I support David, I won't be allowed, I won't be able to deliver my vision for science in government. So the, these 21 year old special advisors had been dispatched to let him know that, um, anyway, I mean, uh, uh, you know, why did he have me there? I said, you know exactly what I'm going to say. You should come out and say what you think, um, and work with Evan and, and Colin and people to kind of sort this for next time. And by the time I'd got back to the office, everyone said, Mark Henderson's just tweeted. Did we have Twitter back then or? I think no, we, had Twitter. Twitter. Yeah. we had Twitter. Yeah. We knew very quickly that you'd got yeah. an interview with him and, so one thing I want to ask you, David, is what's ACMD doing now? Because it felt I feel like I never hear, but it's still the official advisory group to the government on on recreational drugs, isn't it? Yeah. So I think it missed a trick. Uh, so when I was sacked, um, my deputy was uh, Les Iverson. Yeah. You know, really eminent scientist, and and uh, I asked him if he was going to resign, and he said, "Well, I wasn't. Sh- I'm not sure. I think I'll just stay in for a bit to see if I can." 
steady the ship. And then, of course, he got kind of seduced into carrying on. But I think the reality was ACMD had lost its credibility because it, uh, it had lost so many of its scientists and it's never really regained that. And uh, I'm not sure what ACMD is doing now. And it's certainly, it's, it doesn't seem to be promoting science. I mean, it may, it, it may be answering some questions the government put to it on comparative harms of drugs. And, and one of the interesting, I mean, they do use the scale of harms to assess new drugs, that, you know, the, the, the template that we developed, but it doesn't seem to have any, any interest in trying to really move policy on or, or facilitate science, which is, I think, is what it should be yeah. doing. Well, that's fascinating, isn't it, in terms of the perverse consequences for government that their main advisory committee, mm. um, that it lost credibility. I'm sure they wouldn't have wanted that to happen, the opposite. Um, so, so Evan, tell us how successful you were or not. I mean, what was the outcome of those talks with government? Well, I remember, um, I, I, I have an outlook on life that means I always focus on the defeats. Um, and so I remember the bits of the advice principles that we didn't get into into uh, play, but actually we got there was quite a lot. Now I, I, don't, I left Parliament uh, involuntarily uh, <laughs> within a year, so I'm not entirely sure exactly how they were how they ended up being implemented. Uh, but it did show that when you got a group of scientists together and you got people who could draft, right, I have to say again, Professor Colin Blakemore was just willing to get you know two a.m. You know, who's up? Me and him uh, <laughs> editing. Um, and, uh, but, but what you can do some 10 years later is just look at what's happened over COVID. Cause here you see there's thousands, tens of thousands of lives at stake, right? So it's much harder for a government to be populist, harder for the government to not everyone, but the government to be populist against science. And what was encouraging from that, that even with, um, how can I put this politely? A lying charlatan at the head of government, right? <laughs> There was still an adequate transparency of scientific advice coming from SAGE and subcommittees. And importantly, but I'd be interested to know what others think about this who looked at it. I looked at it from the outside. You, you had SAGE members speaking in the media saying, I'm, this is the SAGE position or I'm not speaking on behalf of SAGE. This is my own position, which is what you really want. So that's actually despite the chaos and the characteristics of those in government. Actually, because of the nature of the crisis, I think you, you, there was a positivity. Now, how much that stemmed from the, the, this episode is hard to say, but that was a good thing. Doesn't mean that the people who were monstered by the tabloids, uh, for breaching COVID rules because when, when they were on Sage or experts at Imperial was, is satisfactory. If anything, the legal monstering of people has got worse because they're arguably using less illegal means, the tabloid media now. But it's still horrific to be at the centre of that storm, especially with the social media. But the most damaging thing is still the front pages of newspapers other than a few people on Twitter. So so I think there, there's, it's a mixed picture, but there are signs of positivity coming out of that crisis. Mm. I, I, yeah. I agree with that. I, I have that positive interpretation, but do you? I mean, obviously um, you're looking to, to a point. To a point, yes. I, I, I think that you're – so unequivocally, the input of the scientists who were on SAGE made a bad situation better. Um, I think that's clearly true. Um were we in a position where government responded as one would wish to to scientific advice? No, 
I think we can probably also all agree on on that as well. So, so just to just to pull this together, then, and this this is my last thought, and 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 to get your reaction. So, um, like you, I think I'm the opposite to you. So, I had a very positive memory of the outcome to, me. Uh, to you, Evan Harris. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, um, to the guideline, the new guidelines. And I'd gone around telling everyone that what we'd got was wording which said that in future, the chairs of SACS scientific advisory committees, the ones that are independent, appointed from universities or research institutes, um, should have the option of having government communications help them get their reports out or their university the Wellcome Trust, if they work for it, their funders, the Science Media Centre, their National Academy. And I've been so proud of that. And then a few years later, I look back at it, whether it had been changed and I didn't know, but it said where there is a major row and a major dispute between government and the SAC, the Science Advisory Committee, the chair may have the right to use another way. So I thought, no, that wasn't it at all. It was it was to exactly the opposite, to kind of normalise the fact that if you are appointed to chair a scientific committee, your deliberations will be independent, which they were. There's very little interference in these independent scientific advisory committees. But the result, the final report, is taken by the departmental government communications people who will make sure that it doesn't conflict with you know, government messaging, etc. So one of my big questions is, do we give up on ever changing that? I'm really interested in, in whether, I mean, I think it was very interesting what you said there, Evan, about actually... Probably some of the things where independent mm, members of SAGE could speak to the media and did throughout the whole pandemic. They're on the Today programme, they're on Sky, they're on Five Live, just talking about the science and the evidence while also advising government. So is there a positive legacy that makes you think we should keep going on this? Um, and, and one of the things, Mark, I always feel, I feel like the journalists sometimes kind of, they're so weary. Oh, well, of course, we're not going to get that, but that scientist to speak to us now because they're government advisor and they kind of give up a bit too quickly whether we should kind of encourage journalists as well to be as you were doing at the time like probing and asking these questions so should we start with you and go around the other way and we'll finish with david and then that'll i think i think it i mean clearly clearly there were a lot of scientists doing that both being independent and advising the government during covid and i think that was a net positive for for the way things happen but I think what one of the things we have to be incredibly <clears throat> careful with that, that and interested in David's reflections on this, the toll that takes on those individuals is vast because they're, they're not paid for it. They are literally putting themselves in harm's way to do that in terms of their own mental health and their own um, stress levels because of the level of, of, of um, scrutiny and 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 hostility they come under from those who don't like their advice including those within government mm. and the the internal government campaign against scientists whose views they didn't like during covid none of them were sacked but they they got them in different ways look what happened to neil ferguson mm. for example mm. um that that is deeply unpleasant and we are in danger of of I think selecting for people with a very thick skin and a very strong public service ethos only mm. who are willing to to do that kind of work. Evan? I'd like to leave you with a positive message. <laughs> I don't have one. Will you take two <laughs> negative ones? Um, as Woody Allen said. Um, first is that I don't think you're going to make real progress on politicians on some of these issues. Uh, and I take the point yeah. about climate change, but that is different mm. because it doesn't have the human victims that allow the tabloid. I doesn't have the obvious. Uh, 
uh, sort of victims that allow the tabloidization of the issue. I, I don't think we've made much progress there. Although on the positive side, um, if we can stop broadcast media reading out tabloid stories on the Today program as if they're any more meaningful than what people are writing online, we might get somewhere, but they're still very influential. And the second point is that I worry that science, there'll be a new cycle where science is the victim of culture wars that are of the style imported from the US where science and, and science advice has been a very clear victim mm. of that and that that might come over here. There are efforts. It's happened already. Well, indeed, there are efforts to bring the culture wars here. There is already, you know, this, that, that's part of a, a, a political strategy uh, by the current government. I was going to say by part of the current government, but I think it's m- most of them. Um, and it remains to be seen whether it'll go as bad as it has in the US where scientists are, uh, uh, um, the subject of a huge range of conspiracy theories. You see that to a degree in, uh, in, in COVID, but it wasn't led from government. Whereas in the US, some of it is led from parts of the political spectrum. Mm. So I don't know if that's going to happen, but that's a real risk, I think. Mm. Yeah. So just last a couple bit. of last observations. Yeah. So it's a real pity that the coalition didn't get any traction on drugs. And we know that the Lib Dems, the drugs minister was a Lib Dem minister, Norman Baker, and he tried and he tried. And actually, the fact that he failed, I think, makes me even more certain that I did the right thing. Because I, up to that point, 10 years of trying to advise government, always being told, well, we will, of course, eventually, but, you know, let's just do with not yet, not yet. And I realized, you know, if, if when you're in power, you can affect change in the home office, what hope had I had? So that's why I actually having been sacked aloud gave me the freedom to set up a charity drug science, which now does a lot of campaigning and has initiated a lot of research around things like medical cannabis and medical psychedelics. So, so, so that's, you know, that's, did I do the right thing? I think I probably did, but it was mm-hmm. painful at the time. But then I want to say one last thing, really, which is that I'm tough. You know, I mean, I'm, mm. you know, and, but my, my, my kids aren't and my wife isn't. And, and the abuse that my kids and got, and you know, my wife became very anxious about, you know, the phone was, it's very likely our phone was being hacked. We know that, but was our phone being tapped as well? So, so the family did pay quite a, quite a high price. If I'd known that was going to happen, well, I would have discussed it with them. They almost certainly would have said, go for it, Dad. But it would have been a harder decision to have made, made if, uh, if I was worrying about their, their health as well. Yeah. And I think, I, I thank you so much, all of you. I really, really enjoyed that. And I think for me, actually, this episode was depressing in many ways, but actually also very, very positive because people did show courage. Paul Drayson did show courage, despite being told he couldn't achieve what he wanted. You did show courage and you went from studio and you prevailed because of it. At least we were able to see you prevailing. And I think that that point you've made that the the ACMD didn't even serve the government anymore because they had um, made it an ineffective body by, by undermining its credibility. And if there were any enlightened politicians, you would think that they would see that. But But, you know, brave journalism brave politicians and brave scientists and the brave SMC, if I may say well, so. Yeah, we, absolutely. We thoroughly enjoyed yeah. uh, coming to your aid and yeah. fanning the flames of this debate yeah. by, by pouring good science yeah. on it. So. I do see you as a, as a major supporter. Thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed that. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.